Welcome to another week of the Game Dev Show. This is Kaylee Hurst. Sound like a radio DJ. That intro was like very like, hey, I got, yeah, I got Luke Greenaway on the ones and twos. Um, <laughs> in the 80s, a radio DJ yeah. from the 80s, a disc jockey. Um, yeah. yeah, I am joined by Luke Greenaway in his gym jams, as he says. <laughs> It's because it's late here, by the way. It's not like, you know, 3 p.m. You know what? Honestly, everyone's doing their goddamn best right now. And if you need to wear gym jams to record a podcast, then it's okay. Comfort Comfort. over anything else, to be honest. So we are bringing you an incredible guest this week. Godfather of the industry, god person of the industry, cat daddy, self-identifying cat daddy. Douche whisperer. Mike Wilson of Devolver. Yeah, Great, great guest. What you know what's crazy is, you know, prepping for this, he's one of those guests where he's done so much at so many different places that it was almost like, how do we condense that all down into a handful of questions? Obviously, his work at Devolve was incredible, mm-hmm. uh, Hotline Miami, Gris, but just his... Do you know what the thing that stood out for me above all else was his approach to video game creation? He understands totally. it's about the devs. He understands it's about people the passion and he just yeah it was just amazing yeah and i think we research our guests so thoroughly so that hopefully like the questions we ask them are new and different from what they've been asked in the past and i think we accomplish that with mike but not very often does it happen where i learn new things about the guest during the interview like stuff i didn't find in my research at all and that happened with mike like the conversation went in directions i wasn't expecting and um he was just a he's a beautiful guest Mm. Um, and we're excited to share it with you. So let's get into it. Mike Wilson. Okay, Mike, why don't we start chronologically at the beginning with you as a kid? What were you like? Uh, where did you grow up? And when did your interest in games start? I grew up in the dirty south of the United States in Louisiana in a place called Shreveport, which is the worst part of the otherwise glorious state of Louisiana. And luckily... Against all odds, oh, I'm skipping ahead a bit. I'm sorry. I did grow up a poor child um, at that time, and uh, I I still am. Uh, We'll see how it goes, though. I'm only 50. Only 50. Some might be a late bloomer. Anyway, uh, my dad passed early, and I had four older siblings, and my mom was just like, she was pretty done by the time I came along, so I kind of grew up, uh, I was pretty independent uh, through necessity, is what I would say. I spent a lot of time alone, but luckily, my mom did manage to grab some early gaming consoles, which helped a lot. The Odyssey 2, I believe, made by Panasonic, was my first real gaming machine. And then I I had a, a Dungeons and Dragons phase for a few adolescent years. And those two things, I guess, led to my career. <laughs> because against all odds, somehow in Shreveport, Louisiana, also John Carmack, John Romero, Adrian Carmack, and Tom Hall all assembled to work for this guy that had a weekly game magazine called Soft Disk. It was a magazine with a floppy disk, and they were making a game a month for them. And then uh, they became id Software. They decided to do that for themselves. And then they uh, they went on and moved to Dallas and made Wolfenstein. And, and then I followed them there. Well, Bob Drunkle. <laughs> so you went straight from school into gaming? Like working in the industry? I did. Uh, I also That's went great. to college. Yeah. Barely. Like a really yeah. shitty commuter college in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah. Well, anyone who went to college too wholeheartedly is suspicious in my book, so... Oh, yeah. Well, if I had actually graduated from that college, it would have been a big black mark against me being able to join id Software, because none of them had degrees either, because, you know, because at that time, if you were into computers, you had no business in college other than, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe breaking in the lab to use their servers from time to time, but Mm -hmm. they they were teaching languages that were already dead back then. And game teams were so small then, they were really engineering-led, and so no no software engineer, never mind John Carmack, was going to go sit through uh, some computer science classes teaching languages from, you know, the abacus. 
so yeah, it was really through dumb luck that I ended up, Adrian Carmack was a good friend of mine that was just like the best pen and paper, like drawing artist in our high school. Just a guy that, uh, you know, we would ask to, to, when we needed to do artwork for a t-shirt, for a party, whatever it was. So I was the guy that the jocks would ask to go talk to the artists. <laughs> Somebody's got to be the bridge. Somehow I spoke both languages and that, that is, again, that's, that's, translated to my career as well because I basically become the person in between money and art (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah I I didn't realize at the time that I had developed career skills but yeah I would go bother Adrian uh, to make artwork for people he hated (laughs) and then he got a job for five dollars an hour as an intern making pixel art for these nerdy guys who were new to town and then the next thing you know, he got like a real job with those guys. And then the next thing you know, he got a $50,000 bonus. And then the next thing he had a brand new car and mansion. <laughs> this was all in a few <laughs> years, mind you, uh, coming out of Shreveport, Louisiana, where I thought the $5 an hour gig was pretty good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dude, what do you think that is? You know, like you said about D&D and everyone has this like D&D, you had this D&D phase, right? Yeah. Like it's a big thing we hear from a lot of our guests is they have this D&D moment and they're into D&D and a lot of them still play D&D now. How is D&D inspirational to get into the industry? Like what is that transition? I don't know. I guess it was that, you know, back then games were pretty simplistic, video games. So with some exceptions, some text adventures and things, but most games were pretty simple. So D&D was like that pen and paper escape. <laughs> to, yeah. It was like skipping ahead to modern immersiveness, you know, just using yeah. your imagination. But Living for me, world for honestly, the first night I met the id guys, it was uh, going to play D&D. And I, they were all working out of this lake house in Shreveport. And it was literally, uh, Adrian was like, yeah, you should come meet these guys. They're really smart. And you play D&D, right? And I was like, of course. And uh, I go over there and they're all sitting around in their underwear with John Carmack (laughs) with a dungeon master screen. And I was like, okay, I know how to do this, which was good because if I didn't speak that common language with those guys, I was not technical at all. I really had nothing else in common with them, to be honest. And they were all new to town and extraordinarily nerdy at the time. Like John Romero's <laughs> glasses were like that thick. You could barely see his eyes in there. Oh, he already had his flowing locks. They were just, I don't know, they were the nerdiest guys I had ever met, but also incredibly smart and creative mm-hmm. and sweet. And uh, and if I didn't speak D&D, I probably would not have ever hit it off with those guys and wouldn't have been the person they thought of when they started to find success and needed somebody that did businessy stuff that they trusted. It was because, yeah, it was because of D&D. That's so cool, man. Do you know what's weird is like, obviously, you know, in D&D you have languages and you have proficiencies within those languages. It's mad that almost by being able to speak D&D, that having that proficiency on your character sheet enabled you to embark on this epic adventure. Absolutely. And I promise you it would not have happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I didn't speak D&D. Could you imagine? Oh, man, that's great. These guys were so, you know, they were pretty technical for the time, especially Carmack, but even Romero was a programmer. And they, what happens when you hang out with people like that, they just assume that you also know all these things. I did not. I was not. I had taken, like, basic, and I could, you know, I had made some things happen on a screen, but I was not technical. And even when I went to work for those guys, I think they all thought, that I could program or something. They just assume. They don't even ask. They don't talk about it. They just start yelling some gibberish at you. And you're like, mm-hmm, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had an intern that was like a guy from uh, one of the Dwango servers. My first job was with Dwango, which was a way for people to play Doom against each other over phone lines before you could play on the Internet. Yes, yeah, so you'd like dial into a modem bank in your local area code. Anyway, one of those guys was my intern when I first started working at id, and I had to get him to teach me to use email under threat. Like, I told him to absolutely murder him, no questions asked, if anybody found out that I didn't know how to use email. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, look, these guys clearly think I know how to use a computer. <laughs> 
They've just hired me as like a as, as an executive at their company, um, and uh, yeah, and that was really the last computer skill I learned. How do I email? Yeah. I think I'm developing a theory that like <laughs> it's a prerequisite to get into the industry to have like a D and D phase, and then just like ability to nod along when people talk about really technical stuff. Oh, you yeah. don't have to contribute to the conversation, but you have to be able to nod along and be like, yeah. Maybe like, drop I was like never going to lie. If they asked yeah. me if I knew what Just the fuck they along. were talking about, it would be a no. A no, I yeah. lost you like 45 minutes ago. But, <laughs> but they never ask. I love, uh, I love them asking. If you've, got, if you've got any of the emails they've been sending, you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're checking the letterbox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Dude. So you yeah. went to like in software, right? And you were there and you obviously went in like a senior position at exec level. You were Which was hilarious. Couple. I was 24 years old and had never had a, a real job other than, I mean, I'd had a couple of, I guess, real jobs where, but I mean, not really. I had no degree and no real experience in anything that mattered. But uh, the, the whole industry was brand new. Nobody knew what it. they were doing. That was the magic of it. <laughs> That's it, exactly. I think that's, I mean, that's what's incredible, right? Like that generation, the generation you're part of, you kind of created the industry by experimenting, improvising and just... Yeah, yeah, you had to improv. Everything you did was an improvisation because (laughs) there were no rules. So you left id Software, right? And you went to what you describe, you were a cat daddy um, and CEO, uh, what you describe as one of the most celebrated high-profile disasters the industry has ever seen with Ironstorm. Can you tell us about that? Ah, yeah. Glad to. That was a... (laughs) It was one year of my life, and it was... I learned so much in that year about... Just about people, (laughs) uh, egos, my own included. Gosh, it was one of the most fun and most stressful years of my life. Like, I remember for half of that year... The first half was super fun. I left id, first of all, on my own volition, which was a pretty ballsy thing for a, I was 26 by then, year old to do, but but I didn't own any part of id software, and I had grokked that I wanted to own the place that I was working very hard at. <laughs> so, I wanted to, so, yeah, Romero was leaving, and... I w- he invited me to come be his biz guy, which it id was called a CEO. So that's how I became a CEO, which was a ridiculous term for a small company to have. But at the time, the idea was that was the only way the journalists would leave the developers alone was if they could talk to somebody with the CEO title. <laughs> they didn't want to talk to a VP of marketing or, or anything that would have been more reasonable. They wanted to talk to either one of the game creators or the CEO could be a good shield. So that's how that was the CEO part. And the cat daddy part was because I was 27 moving in to be the CEO of a company in the top of a skyscraper in Dallas. And I was 26. So that was the <laughs> that was the ridiculous part of it. that. Was, I guess that was we all had silly job titles and that was mine <laughs> to to fly in the face of like the ridiculousness that anybody was going to call me the CEO of anything. Oh, um, you also did you, have a number of cats, though, right? <laughs> I had grown up with a lot of cats. So you were a literal cat daddy. <laughs> I was. Well, yeah, I didn't actually. Funny thing, a lot of people get this wrong, so don't feel badly, but I did not actually father any of the cats. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Thank you for setting the record straight. I was an adoptive cat daddy. Well, Um, just to be clear. I think that whatever dad raises the cat is the daddy. Oh, thank you so much. There's going to be a lot of cats out there disappointed, I imagine. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, what if this is the moment that one of those cats is like, what? Papa? There's these these grand kittens out there just like, (laughs) world's crumbling. Yeah. but anyway, Ion, we, we had a load of money we had raised. There was a kind of a feeding frenzy for uh, what was going on in Dallas at the time, which was just all of these teams making these like Doom and Quake and Duke Nukem and Age of Empires and Monster Truck Madness. There was so many hits, massive hits being made in this very small area of Dallas, Texas at that time. And so we were the new thing. And so the publishers were just 
dying to give us money without the need for such a thing as a game design document or a team. <laughs> you know? So we hired 88 people, like mostly people that had made really great Doom and Quake levels around the world and brought them in from all over. So it was my first exposure to working with people from all corners of the globe. And all they had in common was they were great at making Quake levels for the most part. And it was just, it was so strange. It was like, I I also felt the weight of all of those people coming and our need to make a good choice for them for having moved from Sweden or South Africa or wherever. And uh, so for the second half of that year, as things started to not happen, like games not being made, I was so tense that I literally couldn't turn and talk to somebody without turning my entire body toward them. I couldn't turn my head. <laughs> we learned a lot. And then uh, luckily for me, luckily, it uh, started to smell enough to where I was like, if I'm going to do God Games, which was the the business plan that I went there with from id, like I wanted to start a publishing company as soon as we delivered these games to the publisher who had given us money that I, I needed to get out of there to do it. Like it wasn't going to happen there anytime soon because the company owed some games to this other publisher, IDOS, that they were just nowhere close to being done with. So, and again, I was like, I was young, but I was like, I think I intuitively felt that this, this pioneering phase of the industry, this part where I fit in because everyone was making it up was going to go away. You know, like it, these were the these were the times to make something happen, uh, especially on the publishing side of the industry, because by then I had figured out that that's where the power really was in the industry and in this weird dynamic. And unfortunately, the people with the power were exercising that power in really shitty ways at the time. And so that was really the one good idea I ever had was like, what if <laughs> what if we got over here in that chair but just didn't do the asshole part. <laughs> what if we <laughs> did all of the other things that those assholes do, but just were not jerks about it? And and just because we had the money, what if we deferred to what was actually important in this equation, which was the talent? And because I had come from fighting with my publisher on behalf of id and then Ion Storm, I mean, I, I knew even though the games industry wasn't a thing yet, I guess I was a big enough fan of the music industry and all the travesties that had gone on in that world to realize that at some point, the talent will be the important part of this equation. It's not going to be the people with money, right? The, the record labels or whatever. Like The only importance they have is who they have signed to their label, right? Nobody gives a shit about a publishing company as a brand, or at least that was my, that was my thought. Like I didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't have a, favorite record label or book publisher or, you know, film distributor. Yeah, that's true. You buy the book based on the book, not on... That's right. I was if, like... Yeah. And back then, they, they didn't even want you to know who the artists were. Or they first of all, they didn't consider them artists. They considered them like toy makers. And so just manufacturers or, or design, toy designers for hire. They didn't want to put the artists' names on the... Back then, they were in boxes... They didn't want to put their names on the front of the box. They were hidden, like, in the fine print because they wanted to promote their own brand. Like, this mm. game came from Activision or this game. Yeah. And which, you know, understandable enough, these companies are trying to pump themselves up. But I was like, from the gamer standpoint, how does that make any sense? Because you make all of these different types of things of wildly varying quality and genre. And I was just like, just let people know who actually made the thing so that they know who they're actually fans of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because at some so point, true. that's where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Because that God Games, you guys did, well, like 120 million in your second year with 12 people. Is that correct? Uh, what a, I guess probably our third year. Yeah, after we sold the company, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, yeah, we had, okay, I had one more good idea. I, I thought I just had that one, but the other one was to let game developers choose our games for us rather than having accountants and marketing jockeys green lighting games, which is what the big guys were doing. I was like, cause I was used to being in the one in the room pretending like I knew what people were talking about. And when I met these other publishers, I saw that they were doing exactly the same thing. I was like, these mother. 
Fuckers are playing golf. <laughs> They're not playing games. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so I was like, and I realized how easily uh, they could be fooled, right? You show up with a couple of screenshots, a nerdy guy blowing some gibberish, and they're like, sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great because they don't fucking know. And that's why 90% of their games were shit, and, every ne- and then they would have this hit carrying everything. And I was like, what if people who made games who actually weren't faking it chose the games that we published and so that's what we did and that's so we had like we had eight new million plus unit franchises started in two years time and it was just because we got out of the way like it was it was just this basic deference of power and admitting who they're who who again in this equation of people working together actually know what they're talking about (laughs) when it comes to what is a good game or a good team yeah that's crazy though but the thing is i know it sounds like something so simple but because it's against the grain of what was going on then yeah like it's actually very you're like actually we're just going to change it around completely and just focus on the devs focus on what they want to do and just have a small group of people who actually know what they want to make i think it's great it, um, it was really fun. It was a tough uh, method to pull off because most developers at that time had been taught by their publishers that everything was a secret. Don't show anybody your stuff because they'll steal it because that's how they think. <laughs> so they were telling the artist that's what would happen. And so games being submitted to a group of peers that are other game developers, you know, that thought is there, oh, they're going to steal all my good ideas. But... They didn't. Turns out all these other great game developers had their own good ideas, you know, and they were a great sounding board. It was tricky to pull off for that reason, because back then the bad guys in suits got away with it by swearing people to secrecy so that they wouldn't talk to one another about, say, how Mm. shitty their deal was. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or yeah, or the abuse they had taken and. Anyway, I was I was uh, I've been very fortunate to have been introduced to the industry at that time and and with that unique position to be able to see the basic problem in the publisher developer relationship. You've worked at quite a few places. And I just want to fast track a little bit to yeah. like the more recent times and so coming up to Good Shepherd, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it almost well, I was on the site having a look at what you were doing there. So obviously you were there for 8 years and it's almost this cross between an investment platform, but also does publishing. So it's almost like, I imagine you encourage investors to invest in the titles, but you're going to publish those titles. So you're also saying, well, look, we're going to stand by the titles that we would sign. Can you tell us about that? Is that how Good Shepherd worked? And- yeah, yeah, it, it was born originally, it was a crowdfunding, an equity-based crowdfunding platform. Like, um, what's the one that still does that? Um, Fig. Because crowdfunding was new. And it was great. It was all this new money coming into games at a time where it was really hard to get anything original funded. It was kind of right before this huge new indie wave. And so unless you were pitching a sequel or something that was just like Tomb Raider or whatever, it was uh, it was really hard to get anything weird greenlit. And so crowdfunding was a miracle. But then Harry, uh, my main business partner in God Games and on through Devolver, was like, wouldn't it be great if we could contribute to these things? But also, if you help somebody make a hit, shouldn't you get some of that money back? You know, if you contribute a, a meaningful amount of money, not if it's 20 bucks and you just want a copy of the game. And so that's what they were. It was a way to invest through the crowd, but it was all new in, in the States. It was under Obama and all the people that hated Obama made it Im- as hard as possible for um, them to actually make this a legal thing in the States. And so eventually we were just like, well, the company also needs to be able to control whether it can give money back to these new investors. So it needs to be a publisher, it needs to be in control of the cash flow. Yeah, it evolved into more of another publisher, like trying to build a second team with similar ideas to Devolver. The only difference being that one team allowed this new money from new investors to come into each project and tried to make sure those investors had a really positive first experience because that's the opposite of what usually happens when you find a a wealthy person kind enough to invest in a film or a game or any sort of artistic endeavor sadly too often artists are like thanks rich dude 
and that's the end of it. And they never hear from them again unless they're calling to say, hey, is the thing ever coming out? It's looked at as a, an obstacle rather than a relationship. And because we came from both sides of that table, we were just like, you know, these guys would invest again if you just treated them better. <laughs> you know, even if they didn't make any money or if they only made a little or if they lost a little, they're doing it because they find it more interesting than the stock market or than investing. Well, so in once whatever. again, you're sort of being a bridge between someone creative and someone business minded and having sort of an understanding of both perspectives and like an empathy for what both sides may want. Totally. Yeah. Um, Just like your high school. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> side hustle. Again, I've been, I've been doing some reflecting, trying to make sense of all of this. So uh, I, I, I have found the thread and that that's a big part of it is cool. a friend of mine actually gave me the moniker, the douche whisperer one time. Oh God. And she was an artist and I was, <laughs> I was, in, I was intervening between her on a big project with some outside funders and it was just about to blow up because they just didn't speak the same language. And so I got on the phone with them and got it all calmed down and back on track. And they're like, you're the fucking douche whisperer. God, now and I'm I picturing was, you with like on the golf course. just. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's man. Unfortunately, I'm not good enough at it. I can't I can't Dude. quite take it to the golf course. I'm not that. <laughs> okay, I'm not that. Uh, I bet you um, Handing out these business cards at the golf course, though, and they've got the douche whisper. The top. They just say cat daddy, douche yeah. whisper, cat daddy, CEO. Douche whisper. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh, man. Uh, this is making me want to get my guinea pig daddy business cards printed up. You should. Use you those. should. You should. Hand them out at GDC next year. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess in 2022. I don't know if anybody's ever going to accept a little thing covered in I germs. I know, right? Somebody again. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's my Petri dish. Yeah. I'll just get, I'll get a face tattoo that says guinea pig daddy so there that you, no one has oh, to come close. No. See, those are never going to go out of style. No. Oh, no. I actually have thought a lot about, you know how Post Malone has always tired tattooed yeah. under his eyes? I think a lot about what my under eye tattoo would be, I think, well, guinea pig daddy, I think would be good. <laughs> Just like right under my eyes. Honestly, you'd never be allowed in a pet shop again. Like. <laughs> Honestly, of all the places to be banned from, pet, pet shop shops. is like, yeah, pretty benign. I was going to ask you, right, you know, like with Good Shepherd and with your mind for, you know, business, good business decisions in creativity and obviously I know Kaylee wants to talk a lot about Devolver, but at the moment, looking at the industry, like, is there anything you would recommend people do invest in? And also, can you predict the success <laughs> of a title? Uh, I cannot. Um, what, I, what what we do at Devolver and, and Good Shepherd, uh, because, and we, we do have an exceptional track record of things making money, those companies, is we... It's not quite back to God games where we have other developers choosing the games, but we do have the people who are most passionate about the types of game we're talking about choosing the games. So it's a, it's a large and amorphous green light process. We make sure that people like myself or people that started a company don't have too much weight just because they've been there a long time and, you know because it it really doesn't matter like you want the best people that are the most tuned in to where that particular game's world is at the moment and they have to be fans of that genre they have to they have to understand what we're talking about and as long as we do that as long as we keep not letting the traditional <laughs> sort of weight get thrown around then then the games we publish end up really being a reflection of that group of people that is devolver that year you know for, for that genre that keeps changing as well because people come and go so yeah i personally cannot other than uh I, I know some tricks to get closer to knowing whether a game can make money or not but we also our green light process is never predicting a hit <laughs> we're always like do we believe <laughs> that we can most likely break even <laughs> <laughs> you know, make a little bit of money because we can only do so many games a year, right? We're a small team. And so every game has to make a little bit 
but we never imagine that something's just going to go gangbusters. Like we never think we're that smart. And uh, most recently, Fall Guys, I would have bet you a lot of money a few weeks before its release that it was going to do possibly okay, that it might break even. It might find an audience, <laughs> which is great. I'm so glad that I actually shared that with my partners before Fall Guys came out <laughs> because it works perfectly for my own constant refrain to like my job for years has been to remind us that we don't fucking know. Yeah. yeah. And the moment that we think we do, the moment we think mm. we're that clever, we're down the wrong path. Right. And yeah. we have to keep remembering that we're just people we don't know nobody knows if if anybody really knew what was going to make a hit that's all they would make <laughs> yeah that's it was true. massive hits i love, I love it. every couple of years all the big publishers say we're we're just going to stop doing so many games we're just going to do like 10 games a year but they're all going to be hits <laughs> just the good ones <laughs> yeah. no i love it. that dude i like that honesty though man just saying we just try to make the best game breaking even right yeah well oh. and that it's not about you and your opinion about the game it's like really about the kind of a less hierarchical view of what it means to make a good game and like you said letting the people who love this genre and this type of game tell you if this is the kind of game they would play yeah. yeah, that's great. Because that's so obvious. That's so obvious <laughs> with games where people, you can tell with certain games, MMOs are a great example of this or, or any like live game, but you can tell when people have changed and the people who have come in have come in for a business decision or they don't fully understand the game because the community feedback is so, it's so black and white. Obviously, communities are generally quite critical, but it's so obvious that actually this game these people are different. Like You're the dev right. teams moved on. There's been some brutal examples of that lately of decisions in the industry being based on business rather than user. It, it's really hard, Kaylee. Like, I, I don't know if yeah. I could run a public company in this way. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, I don't run anything. I should back that up. I don't run anything. <laughs> I don't know that our team could operate on a massive level with these same principles because the pressures and the people involved just become very different when it's a public company. Because whatever asshole invested last week, you now have to make more money for them, you know, and the, the drivers become so different. And so those companies are full of really smart, well-meaning people, but the totally the paradigm is broken, you know, that you always yeah, have to right. be growing. Yep. You know, that, that's the part that's broken. Like no matter how well you are doing, you just had your best year of all time. Mm -hmm. And you still have to do better next year. You have to grow more. <laughs> You're like, yeah. why? What, what if Gangbusters is yeah. perfect? What if we could just keep doing that? <laughs> you know? Well, and I was going to ask you about this later, but maybe let's kind of combine it into, you know, founding Devolver. And then one thing I wanted to ask you about with Devolver is the creative freedom that you have by having a smaller team and how that plays out and how that leads to innovation and creative expression, which you've touched on, but just how that's different on a smaller team versus, like you said, these bigger publicly traded companies. Yeah, De Devolver, I really feel like, is the culmination of all of the lessons from all of these other smaller, you know, a year here, two years there, all of these experimentations. And it's kind of taking all the lessons and applying them. And one of the negative lessons we had learned was about not being in control of our finances and therefore the company. And so there was a company in between these that's even more embarrassing than Cat Daddy. It was called Gamecock. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, I did that. I did that. I, I, did it as a, I did it as a joke originally, and I, I pitched it to our new billionaire investor, and I was fully ready to let him off the hook as soon as he made a twisted face, but he was like, I love cool. Oh, no. I was like, okay, well, I guess we're right. calling the No, I guess I have to do it. I guess we're going to call the company Gamecock for a while. Um, but... <laughs> But we had learned we, we learned that small is good and the less money you have to raise from outside because while my, my job title was CEO at Ironstorm and, and God Games and Gamecock, I wasn't actually in control of anything. The people that When you say Gamecock, you sort of mumble it because you're it's hard. clearly still yeah. a little bit ashamed. Say, say it with pride, man. Gamecock! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know what's funny is before... <laughs> I learned with Gamecock 
And it was back when we still had to sell everything into retail. And so the retail chains were the ultimate power in the industry because in the States anyway, there were only like five retailers that mattered and GameStop was half the industry. Like, so if they didn't take your game, you were just fucked. <laughs> or if they didn't take, you know, enough of your game. And so you really had to go bow down to these guys. And <laughs> what I didn't know was all of the buyers in the industry in the interim between God Games and Gamecock had become women. <laughs> so now I was going around to with our sales team to all of these to You're Best like, Buy. It's, uh, it's and GC. Target. We just go by GC. I was like, it's a fighting chicken. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it noble, a noble beast. And not one of them had a f***ing problem with it. So, oh, great. Including Walmart. Everyone said Gamecock and carried Gamecock games for a couple Proudly. of years. Which, which just reinforced, again, the point of the silly name was that our name doesn't matter. We're the publisher. And let's let's just make sure we can never take ourselves too seriously by calling ourselves something ridiculous. That was the point of it. But Devolver's <clears throat> a good name, though. Devolver's a much better name. <laughs> <laughs> it just came about organically over some beers, and then uh, it was at a time when all of the good names were taken already, which is the era we live in now. And so foreign words are handy, and... We got to Devolver by talking about Devo and Devolution or De-Evolution. And then, I don't know, one of us over beers said the word and we're like, that's not a word. And Harry, who speaks Spanish, said, that's a word in Spanish. I don't know what it is. (laughs) And we we looked it up and it meant uh, to return to give back. Oh, Devolver. Or to throw up. In Spanish. Oh, cool. All good stuff. Like, All good stuff. Like, that's us in a nutshell. <laughs> We're returning. We're here to give back. And a lot of people are going to throw up along the way. Um, but yeah, it, so, so we learned through Devolver. We started very small with just our own money. And uh, we got a little bit from these outside investor friends of ours to start, but we had the right to buy them out, which we did as soon as we had the money to do so, as soon as we could start paying ourselves. And we just grew very slowly and organically. And again, with the luck, (laughs) uh, we got a hold of Hotline Miami. And before Mm. that, working with Vlambeer and just this new wave of all these, this new, suddenly it was a few people making a game again instead of dozens or hundreds of people and we knew from the old days that things were more fun when it was a small group of people and that you know doom was made by five guys in six months <laughs> there's been, never been a more fun doom <laughs> than that uh, there's been much more impressive dooms but not nothing as genuinely fresh and fun as what was created by that very small team and that's true of all of these massive franchise halo was smart you know a very small team People forget all these massive franchises originally began, that Colonel almost always began with a small independent team somewhere. Uh, mm. Minecraft. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know. It's like three guys, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All these it shows things. as and, well, though, man. Like, in the games, it shows that you guys do. Like, even it's small. Just work. There is, like, Hotline Miami. There's just... I remember playing it for the first time and there was just like at the time it just felt like there was nothing else kind of encapsulated almost like that early 90s like you'd gone all the way back and mine was like Leisure Suit Larry but on like acid it was kind of like yeah yeah, it was just yeah Yeah. so good yeah we we thought so too and but even before that again we had been turned on to this new wave of indies that were making mostly free games for a while they were making demos you know to get noticed and we were like I bet people would pay a few bucks for these you know if they were allowed to finish and make it you know as good as it can be and then we really just got it was so exciting because again so much of the industry had gone into bigger and bigger and free to play and all of these things that you just had to be massive to participate in really and we're like we're not participating in that shit at all because <laughs> we're small and they're small and this market is big enough to feed us well because we didn't owe anything to any investors right we didn't know we didn't have to grow and so we were thrilled when we could start paying ourselves and then we started paying ourselves pretty well and the developers got rich and we're like 
what is wrong with this? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> and so we just stuck with it. And I remember uh, when things first started to take off, a guy from Time Magazine came and got me at E3. He was like, where do you see Devolver in five years? I was like, I hope we see it right here on this parking lot doing the same exact thing <laughs> because yeah. this is awesome and fun and <clears throat> there's just no artificial pressures, you know? And that's the magic of staying small. And it's not just for games. I, entrepreneurs come to me all the time and I'm just like, it's scary to try to make a business go, but if you're not trying to create an empire, if you're just trying to create something to subsist on, you know, so enough for you to be able to do what you love and, and support yourself, then that's completely doable. Moderately ambitious. Although the thing is, you're talking as though you're moderately ambitious, but you've accomplished amazing things in your moderate ambition. I, th that's <laughs> the thing, is the, the ambition is to to live a good life, right? And to, yeah. not, to not be miserable. Like, it breaks my heart that people have found themselves in this, what seems to be a dream of an industry, but they end up at one of these big companies where it becomes the opposite. <laughs> it becomes a nightmare yeah. because yeah. the, just again, the paradigm just puts all the power in the wrong place and all the motivations in the wrong place that have nothing to do with the, the creativity and the magic that makes it all go, you know? Mm. So it doesn't That's work so for everyone. Luckily, <laughs> luckily the big guys don't care about us too much because with the exception of fall guys that, that got some attention, but most of the people, honestly, even, even guys I've known since the old days, men and women that I've, you know, seen at E3s and GDCs for 25 years, if they're off at Apple or they're uh, wherever they're at now, they're often just not even aware of Devolver <laughs> or, or any of our games. And most people that identify as gamers on the street aren't aware either. It's easy to forget when you live in this little ecosystem that it really doesn't exist <laughs> to most of the world. Like none of our stuff is, is mainstream until Fall Guys. Um, it's weird though, isn't it? Because I don't. I look at like what like Miami is like, like Gris as well. I don't know. I just imagine the games that everyone plays. I, I get right? it. Like, they're all and then when you're in that world, that's the way it seems. Like everybody yeah. knows this, but I promise you, if you just go ask a bunch of people on the street, they have no idea what you're talking about. Outside the industry, yeah, I suppose you do forget that unless you are play games a lot or you're in the industry. Yeah. Again, e even inside the industry, if you work in the big part of it, the AAA part of it we are not on the radar except for you know maybe our our e3 thing is all people are aware of because most of our games almost none of them are big enough to carry a company that's big i was thinking for like a second because i looked at obviously we, we research our guests and obviously we already knew who you were and obviously knew devolver um because we are in that smaller part of the industry. <laughs> then I saw Transcend Entertainment and I was like, God, this is like a big step, like outside of games. And can you tell us about that? Like the inspiration yeah. behind it? Uh, the inspiration is from a company called uh, Meow Wolf, like meow like a cat, wolf. I don't know if you've heard of them, but I haven't. Um, I like he's the name. Giggling. He thinks that he thinks I'm yanking him along, but this is real. This is a real company. Um, no, Luke just giggles a lot. Uh, yeah, no, I love it. Meow Wolf was a bunch of artists, a collective in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That I think a lot of them were born out of like doing big installations for Burning Man and for other festivals that like to have big art, right? And those are gigs, right? You go build a thing. And it's a gig for a week or two and you have wonderful people around you in this community. But then a lot like our video game artists, when they leave a conference, they're back in isolation wherever they're at, you know, and that community kind of goes away. And I'm a Burning Man person as well. I, I made sort of the first real documentary about Burning Man back in 2002 through four. And through that became good friends with the people that started it. And I'm just fascinated by their journey of trying to keep their vision pure and somehow stay in business, you know? It's still interactive art, right? And it's still game design in a way. It's just physical spaces that blow your mind instead of virtual ones. And because I've spent my whole life in digital arts, I'm really attracted by the analog stuff and things that actually bring people together in a, in a space to have a mind-blowing experience and then to be able to just sit and look each other in the eye and talk about it. 
obviously the most COVID unfriendly business plan uh, <laughs> one can imagine. That's what I was thinking when I read it. Yeah. Um, which is heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, it's just been on ice while we wait to see what happens and to see if that vision, luckily, before I leased out 20 to 40,000 square foot space, <laughs> that would have been a bigger problem. But I've gotten to know through that Burning Man part of my life, I've gotten to know these artists and makers that make physical crazy things. And I see the similarities in them and the people that make the, the same things for digital art. And they, they don't imagine that they live in the same world at all because, you know, this team over here uses paint and saws and, you know, welders and whatever, lasers. <laughs> and these guys are doing it all in, uh, in a game engine. But they are the same people. <laughs> They're artists, you know, they are crafts people or trades people that have learned to do this very specific weird thing that most people can't do. And, and most people will never appreciate, to be honest, you know, like most renowned game artists still have a hard time being considered real artists in, in the world, you know, whether it's their family who doesn't play games or, or contemporaries or just it's this two weird little niche subcultures that I saw a lot of um, the same strengths and the same vulnerabilities as well. And so I just enjoy working with both kinds of interactive artists. And that, that was sort of the, the idea for Transcend was as I moved to this new city to be able to create something, like to give a gift, to, to become a part of the community by creating something that people are really going to, uh, to enjoy, something they've never seen and have no idea when I, you guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you really can't until you go into one of these spaces and you see that, you know, the care that somebody has gone to to create this world, this story for you to experience with your body and your senses. Um, it's humbling, you know, and you see people walk through these things and come out the other side and sitting in a cafe like, what was that? You know, mm. why did it make me feel so good? <laughs> you know, or so childlike, you know, because... Well, I happen to live in a city that loves craft. So Portland actually does sometimes have beautiful spaces dedicated to craft and experience, oftentimes a more analog experience. We used to have like a museum of craft that was exactly what you're saying, like a space to come together and view something that makes you think differently about your day to day life, not a painting on a wall, mm -hmm. but a crafted experience. It's yeah. really powerful. Yeah, and what's cool about these spaces, whether it's Burning Man or Meow Wolf or what any of these others, they're, they're in Tokyo, Paris, all, all around now, people are starting to find, create these spaces, and they're all meant to be hands-on. They're interactive. It's not like, stay behind the velvet rope, do not touch. Beautiful. It's please yeah. touch. It's not complete until Experience you touch this. it, until cool. you figure out you know what this story is through your own involvement in mm -hmm. it. So it's, it's very much like games in that way. But it, again, you have to remember, most people don't play games. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, it, which means they often just don't play at all, mm -hmm. right? If they're mm -hmm. not theatrical and they don't play video games and they don't play sports, then when do the when do people play? That's so cool, dude. <laughs> no, I, 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 I can't wait to do it again. I can't I wait. Know. But but so so this little ragtag team in Santa Fe built a an insane experience called the House of Eternal Return in a former bowling alley, and they were funded by George R. R. Martin. Wow, um, he gave cool. him a few few million bucks. I think he. It's funny you can you can find a documentary. I think they just sell it online uh, themselves now. The Meow Wolf documentary, but you see him like I think it was originally like three hundred k. He was going to give him, and it just kept growing into a few million bucks. That's cool. <laughs> but He's he a got character. That, but he got that few million bucks back in like five minutes because there has been a line down the block for yeah. three or four years now pre COVID, and it was it's inexpensive it's like 20 or 30 bucks to go in and you can stay as long as you want and so locals and tourists go in again and again and they just keep tweaking the story and the experience and and so then that little ragtag group of artists and their cooperative raised 150 million dollars to start spreading these all over the place because every town like santa fe is a small town in a desert 
And this became the thing to do when you go there. Like it was the reason people would route their road trip through there. And so every small town wants one of these now or or medium sized city or whatever, because it's just something new to do. Our menu of activities to do indoors with our friends or family has been pretty limited for our entire lifetime. It's like, (laughs) do you want to go to the movie? Do you want to go Mm -hmm. to the arcade? Do you want to go? It's like five or six things. And so, yeah, it's the potential for this movement is huge. And what's beautiful about it is these jobs are full time jobs with benefits for craftspeople and artists. They're not Mm. gigs. Right. So they have a real community and they can have a real career. uh, We need this. Is this in London? People's minds. Uh, I don't I, I haven't seen one in London yet. Um, but I'm sure it sounds so good. It does sound amazing. Also, Portland would love it. Yeah, it's do you know when you say that actually your outdoor activities are quite obviously we just love the pub, right? Like everyone just goes to the pub all the time, has a pint, etc. But like you're actually quite limited to what what you can do in a weird way. You're right, there is just like yeah, movie. Yeah, it's, it's a rainy day. I guess we can go to a museum. I don't know. And it's literally been the same fucking menu our whole life. <laughs> and it's especially poignant, I think, if you have children. And I, my children range from uh, 29 to 12. And so I've been a father for most of my life. And so I, I think you just become hyper aware of it when you go through different, basically almost different generations of children at this point. With the same offerings, right? The same stuff to do as their dad, as far as indoor activities. That's so cool, though. That's like, beautiful. I love that you guys are doing that. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? It's like someone describing a game to you or something to you, and you're like, God, well, you can't really imagine what it's like until you're actually doing it. And I feel yeah. like it's hard to contextualize within an active environment. Um, yeah. But I'm always up for, like, new stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Well, everybody is. Everybody's desperate that's why mm. that's why these things are so popular you know and it, it's also because it's it's brilliantly done and because unlike say like an amusement park or something where it's already expensive and then once you're in they're trying to get you to buy more and more shit which feels abusive if you're the parent there you know and you're suddenly you've you've treated your child to this experience and now you're having to constantly say no all day can mm. i also have this oh, and this God, and yeah. you know Uh, or or standing in line for an hour hour and a half for something that lasts two minutes like it's all kind of abusive and these things are the opposite of that like it's it feels like a gift because they charge you so little and they're not asking you for anything and you can stay as long as you want and it's something you've never experienced before so yeah every city needs this I, yeah. I agree, and and it really will revitalize a lot of these trades that are not seen as viable career paths anymore. You know, and what's great about those trades is they're not don't require a university either. They're mentorships, mentors and apprentices, and so to be able to learn something like that and make art for a living and actually have a salary and benefits is. It's about as cool That's as being cool. a game developer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I keep thinking too about all of these like office buildings or industrial spaces that are going to be empty post COVID. And what are we going to do with all those downtown industrial spaces that need a new function? Yeah. That's yeah. a beautiful yeah. use of them. Absolutely. And I think there might be, probably not right now, but I think there was something in London now that I think about it that was uh, temporary. It's like a more like a museum show, you know, it was there for a few months, which is the way that Meow Wolf and there's this brilliant one in New York called Sleep No More. They both started as like six month gigs and then like, you know, eight years later, (laughs) they're still sold out every day because they didn't know how big these things would be either. So anyway, that's what Transcend is about. We really haven't done much except for uh, the projects on our website that are in pre-production, pending what happens after COVID and finding the right spaces for them here in Victoria. I like to dabble in other sorts yeah. of douche whispering. <laughs> Dude, honestly, like you've got so many, saying, so many feathers to your hat. Yeah, like there's so... I think it's great. Okay, I was going to... Ask. I've just read the question, and honestly, I must have been—I don't know—on a lot of caffeine or something. But I'm gonna—I'm gonna ask it how I've written it because I think it's uh, a great use of vocabulary, um, so, yeah. <laughs> which is often my weak point. Kaylee is often correcting my uh, 
Well, I just have a lack of vocabulary. I would never but, correct you. <laughs> Let's hear um, your big words. Let's oh, dude. Do you know what? And they're not even that big. That's the embarrassing thing. Um, <laughs> so art is a form of communication and representation of thought, a manifestation of an individual's psyche and their perspective of a topic. As the most popular form of media and the fastest growing creative industry, how should the video games industry tackle politics? Should it? And if not, why? That's a big one. Yeah, I, I've often thought yes, uh, because our medium is so powerful. And for a lot of people, it's really, it is their media. Like a lot of people that are really deep into games don't really pay attention to a lot else. And uh, it's odd to me that any efforts in a political or uh, even just being serious direction uh, are often just abjectly rejected by gamers. They're like, oh, don't be bringing that real world shit into my world <laughs> you know just <laughs> just don't fuck it up and i get that too you know that was part of my argument with gamecock i was like hey we're in the games industry can we all just stop being so fucking serious for a minute like i feel like i'm in the insurance industry or something like can have you guys forgotten that this is the game industry and i, I get that idea but there's room for all kinds of things you know like if if you only love action movies do you care that somebody's making social impact documentaries? Does it bother you? You could just not watch it, you know? No, but for some reason, and I think it's because our, our little subculture and the pockets of it, whether it's esports or indie or whatever it is, are so insular that people are protective. It's like, hey, this is my thing. I found my safe space. These are my mm -hmm. people. Please don't come in whispering to me about these douches. So I, I get it. But yeah, I think there's room for everything. And what is also easy to forget if you've been in this industry for a while is that it is still in its infancy. You know, we're still in the silent movie era in a lot of ways. Like, and if you look at the potential of VR and if you look at the potential, I think this indie movement has just endless potential. It's just like the streamer movement, democratization of creativity and commercialization of creativity suddenly it's not the same people making all the games you know sure. which has been our problem for a long time and why we get mm -hmm. stuck in so many why you know so many uh, jesus another shooty game you know it's mm -hmm. like can we just come up with something else but it's hard if that's all you've ever been exposed to so i think the best thing about the indie movement is uh that these people are not trained in that way necessarily because suddenly people can make games that are not terribly technical you know they come from all different backgrounds rami ismail was our guest a couple weeks ago and he expressed something very very similar um mm -hmm. and he said it more articulately than i will but basically that his future vision for the industry was that anyone anywhere can make a game and that the vision for that game isn't like it makes money it's just a game that they think would be cool to make mm -hmm. and maybe it's like something that only their mom sees because they made it about what it was like growing up. You're kind of saying the same thing, that we need to democratize. There yeah. you go, Luke. I got my big <laughs> word in. <laughs> what it means to make a game. Well, well, it's already happened, you know, like the, yeah. just getting your hands on a usable engine used to, not very long ago, was True. half a million dollars to start. You know, that, that eliminates almost yeah. everyone. Yeah. And so that really left just the power players, the people with that kind of money and... You know, typically your your white male that's been at it for a while that is bankable mm -hmm. enough to put that kind of money behind. And the indie movement just threw all that out the window. And, you know, neither of the guys that made Hotline are very technical people. Like they couldn't have made a game uh, without something as simplistic as Game Maker. They didn't have the technical chops. They would have had to hire some badass programmer. And then now the creativity is... In the old paradigm, that was the person with the real power. That was who could take their ball and go home if there was a creative uh, difference, mm -hmm. was the person who could make it all go. The lead programmer had all the power. And mm -hmm. with these game engines and tool sets, like you're, you're seeing the fruit of that and all these original just wacky games that come out, like the ones that, a lot of the ones that Devolver but if you try to explain to somebody what the game is, well, it's a it's a clown that's uh, homeless and uh, he's misunderstood and he just really wants to hug everyone, um, but he can't communicate with words. And 
You're like, what? Oh, I'm sorry. That that was a weird one. But we also have this pigeon dating simulator. We're it the only like, human uh, in an all-bird school. It oh, feels man. like one of those writing exercises where you get, like, three random words and you have to, uh, like, write a song using your three random words. Totally. Like, clown hugs and uh, I love Damp. it. Yeah. Damp. Yeah. <laughs> Damp. <laughs> this kind of peaked though with um, Untitled Goose Game um, when you literally play you play it as a goose like, and it's just like you, you know I don't think it's like, yes. yet people are like, like yes please yes I'm in <laughs> Right? Oh, and imagine trying to get that through a focus group at a big company, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's like you've got these like die, these die hard. They're great games like um was it like the farm simulator games, the tractor simulator games. You go on Steam and people are like, yeah, like they've got four thousand hours played and they're like, Yeah, this is this is crack to me. This is this is what I need. And you're like, other places that just would never appeal. Absolutely. Like a, that's, that's, nice a, for everyone. that's the other wonderful thing about this industry is just that constant surprise of what works and scratching your head and imagining everyone around the world also just kind of <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, I've just well, killed myself to make this, you know, incredibly immersive hundred hour dungeon crawl. The goose game is just <laughs> blowing it away. That's what's so good about our industry, though. Like that's what yeah. I love about it. Is well, all creative industries. I love that music. Films the same. Music the same. The Korean film. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Oh. Um, Parasite. Uh, it won the, Parasite. Won the Oscar. Yeah. yeah, it won the Oscar. Like, and it was like it was incredible. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's incredible. And it's yeah, so. Yeah. I was just like, God, this is great because it's so chill to watch. You can actually see everything going on and it all makes sense. And you're like, you know, that really appeals to me. But I know like nine out of 10 people that probably won't even appeal to. Like, And it's, well, I don't know, man. Most it's, people, if you just say, oh, it's in Korea, it's a Korean film with subtitles. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm out. I'm good. Yeah, good on that. I know. And that's the other really beautiful thing about our industry and especially the indie movement. Again, because you don't have to make something huge. It's people from literally everywhere on the earth making these things and nobody knows where they come from for the most part or cares, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's even more global, I would say, than music or film or books. Because True. especially like Fall Guys is the ultimate example because there's no anything. You don't choose a gender or a race. There's no talking. So there's no language barriers. So it's just humans stripped down, mm -hmm. you know, the simplest form playing together without needing to know anything about the other person or needing to identify in some way themselves, right? Just, I'm just a human uh, racing. <laughs> I'm just a jelly bean. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a jelly bean. I am a similar a tutu to your tutu. You know, <laughs> let's do this. Um, Beautiful. <laughs> so obviously, you know, you founded multiple publishers. You've been incredibly involved in the industry since, you know, its inception since, you know, the Godfather era, so to speak. And you've like obviously worked on and been part of so many successful titles. Looking back, what's been your proudest moment or greatest accomplishment so far? I don't know if you can call it a moment, but Devolver is definitely the proudest situation. Because again, I, I feel like it's the culmination of a lot of hard lessons, you know, and a lot of, I mean, those other companies, we sold them against our will. We were, there were heartbreaks, each one of them. And starting a company, creating a company is like creating a game or a film or anything else. You really have to put your whole heart into it to give it a chance. Mm. And so each one of those, Dwango to id to Ion Storm to God Games, all of, to, to Gamecock, if you add all of that up, it's maybe 10 years of actual work time. And then Devolver is now uh, that, that old by itself, right? And I really feel like it's still just kind of getting started like we have such an incredible team put together now like i am completely irrelevant which is why i'm available to do things like this <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's um, good i was wondering why you replied <laughs> yeah yeah no but no, there's nothing like like i'm gonna do other things right i'm not i'm not done with my my working life but uh i can't imagine anything being as as fun and as pure as devolver you know, like if I do other things, it'll be just because they're other things, <laughs> you know, not because I don't think it can get any better as far as working uh, in this current industry uh, as working with the people that I've 
we currently have assembled around the globe. And luckily, mm. we're all already working from home. <laughs> you know, right. we were ahead of this game by about eight years. Jeez. Yeah, Devolver. I think that's a, a beautiful note to end on. I'm glad you're proud of what you're accomplishing with Devolver and, and what you're going to accomplish. That's mm. great. Dude. It's been a pleasure, man. It has. It's such a pleasure. Yeah. It's been so funny as well. Like, so, like, yeah. my here. face kind of hurts from smiling so much. I know, yeah. so is mine. Yeah, um, well, and thank I you guys so much for weight. <laughs> Sorry, God. Thank you for sharing those beautiful smiles with me today. Oh. All right. Well, thank you. You've both been so lovely and the questions are great. And uh, sorry for rambling so much, but that's what I do. You're a beautiful guest. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Thanks, guys. Bye. Peace. All right. That was Mike Wilson, our incredible guest from Devolver. Thank you again to Mike. We love you. The Game Dev Show sends you all of all of our love. Uh, I'm also sending him my cat. I don't think we covered that on air, but. um, (laughs) Yes, we will quit. (laughs) Oh, not at all. My cat's got a new home. <laughs> I know. And your cat won't be used to a loving home, so I'm sure they'll absolutely love living with Mike. Benign indifference is the oh, word yeah. for how I feel about him. Yeah. All right. This isn't a cat cast. I, that was a great conversation with Mike. I loved some of the like discussions that we had about his work with um, Transcend, Transcend Digital, right? It was so interesting to me and just to how he views that as an extension of the creativity and the craft and the art that he creates in games. It was a great conversation. Do you have a favorite yeah. part? I, do you know what? I just enjoyed, I, lo- I loved hearing his like stories of back in the day with Ironstorm. Oh in, yeah. It's software back when he made all his mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, yeah, his talk about not knowing how to use an email. Um, which is weird because we obviously take it for granted now. It was so good. Okay. You know when you're almost exhausted because you're like, you've been smiling so oh, much. Oh, my face hurts episode. from smiling, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I laugh too much. But, um, it was great. If you have another great guest for us, gamedevshow at ptw.com is our email or ptw.com slash thegamedevshow. You can get a hold of us. We haven't gotten any Bernie memes yet. We sent a call out for Bernie Sanders memes and we haven't gotten any yet. So send those our way. All of the thoughts, views, and opinions we've expressed today are our own. Anything else, Luke? No. Um, yeah, great to have Mike on. Uh, absolute pleasure, um, obviously, working with you as well, Kaylee. And also, big shout out to Connell, who. Oh, works on yeah. The Game big shout out to Connell. He's, yeah, he does an incredible job with um, sourcing, communicating with the guests before they come. Connell on. for King. All right, Monfrere. GG. GG. Game over.